0: Hey yo, what's going on, fam? Thank you for locking in again. This Clarity with TK podcast, and on today's episode we have entertainer, Mr. Flobo, boys. What's, hey, up. Now, what's going on, man? How you been?
1: I, I'm good. I, you know what? I'm on the I'm on the Clarity show. I know we're gonna talk about that Clarity stuff because I've been going through some stuff. Nah, I'm just kidding. We're good, baby. 101 percent, man. I'm so glad to be on. Hopefully, we can have a good time.
0: Yeah, man. I'm pretty sure we are, man. Can you tell me a little bit before we get into the questions and whatnot? What's been going on in your life lately, and what you've been up to, man?
1: Oh man, that's that's a very loaded question. Um, <laughs> but 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 truthfully, I would say that it's it's the entertainment uh, business for me. I've gotten to my own career as an entertainer uh, for the past six years. Starting off uh, doing stand up comedy eight years ago, and that that do the wedding DJ business too. So. This year, to answer your questions, really more about building that business on for next year. So, so much times when I think about leaning into something I wanted to do, it was always, yeah, I want to do the side thing plus work. I want to do the side thing plus handle my bills. And now the first time in a long time, I'm able to like do something I like and to do something I love. But I got to, you know, do the planning because when you're own your own business, you're the CEO, you're the chief revenue officer, you're the IT guy, you're the marketing person. So I'm just trying to get my ducks in a row for next year, for sure.
0: That's amazing, man. I mean, congratulations on that. Like, to live out of your passion is is everything. By accident. That's what, <laughs> that's what a lot of people strive for, but not a lot of people have the guts to go for it, you know? Okay. And uh, it, right? I don't want this to be an interview. I want it to be a conversation. But yeah. I saw that you talk about the art of interviewing and the art of interviews. Can you tell me a little bit more about that and some stuff that you can share with me? to get better at interviewing people and just keeping it natural because you interviewed some big shot actors and and celebrities (laughs) and and you know you've been on a lot of podcasts so whatever you learned from that man
1: i think the number one thing is what you're doing now right and um an interview style is not necessarily a bad thing or a good thing it's just the way it is so five ten years ago it really was about getting ask those hard questions you'll even see that on like a sports show it's like mm-hmm. hey you lost the game how do you feel okay tomorrow's the next game what are you gonna do tomorrow and it's very like cut and dry uh podcasts themselves have kind of evolved into conversations and that's how you uh, be able to do two things and that's provide value for your listeners and make your your guests comfortable so i am a big fan of getting all the notes i know some people say oh is this free-flowing no i get all the notes because I trained on one of my late night talk shows, and that was at 10 p.m. local time, and people will, be, will do my show live, but they'll be tired and they don't have much to say. So I write enough stuff to make sure that if it, the conversation falls apart, I can always fill it with more stuff. You, know? you don't want to be caught looking at tabs like, oh, tell me about your dog Fluffy, you know? But at the same time, you have to be able to look at your show and know how long your show wants to be and then decide on the fly whether or not you want to keep the questions you want to ask or throw it out for something else. Or just, hey, look, my questions are too formal and rigid. Let me take a break and ask something. So our new AM Sam Radio, which is my flagship podcast, I'll do the questions later out. If you say something as my guest that's interesting, I'll always double down. But, like, if I have a question loaded, but I feel like it will be too interviewee, I will stop down and ask a personal question. Like, hey, what's a movie you see? Which favorite color? We ask what your favorite junk food is, because the show is about entrepreneurs, creatives, and everyone mm-hmm. has to eat on the run. And that kind of makes it seem a lot more organic, right? And I notice a word that people throw oh, around, like, authentic. Be authentic. Right. And that gets right. weird because it becomes recursive, right? How to be authentic? Be yourself. How you be yourself? Be authentic. But ultimately, right. you want to be able to ask a question in a way that people can really think in the moment and not go, oh, yes, I, I was born in this city and now I do this. You know, if I go, hey, OK, great. I know where you're born, but give me a childhood memory about growing up. Then it goes, oh, wow. Well, when I was a kid, I ate this ice cream flavor or whatever. And right, that right, opens it right, right. up to be more of a conversation. So it's kind of a mix of that. Have the structure, be rigid, but also
0: be flexible in that structure. Amazing advice, man. Thank you for that. I saw somewhere that you was a Brooklynite as well, because I was yeah. born in Brooklyn, grew up in Brooklyn. Oh, yeah? so, okay. yeah. so what's your favorite memory from Brooklyn now that you're in the West Coast?
1: Oh, wow, well, you know what's cool about being from Brooklyn? I'm also a Mets fan. That's very important. To, mm. uh, because that team, until very recently, had like underachieved so much that yeah. like walking around with a Mets hat was kind of like a tribal mark. You know what I mean? Being able to, to go to any city or state, Brooklyn is always in the house. You can... Go from LA to Iceland. There's always one dude from Brooklyn, <laughs> you know. Right. Uh, and and when someone sees that Mets app, being like, "Oh, you, are you a fan?" I go, "Oh yeah, well, I used to watch the games as a kid." So that's like one of my best memories as a kid because it 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 was one of the things that my dad taught me baseball, but it mm. kind of stuck with me. But growing up, man, I think Brooklyn was like the third parent. You know what I mean? Like it, it taught you not to leave things unattended. It taught you to to not give girls your sweaters, like it, you know. It, it taught <laughs> you how to take a punch. So you how to how to throw a punch yourself or, or how to have a curse word from every language because every language was represented there. It really you know. was a cool time. And I look back, my parents are from the West Indies, right? I look back and I go with Pan Am and all that stuff. You could have settled in Toronto, Boston, Miami, all these places, but you picked mm-hmm. New York and, and you picked Brooklyn specifically. And It's been nothing but, but beneficial to me for sure.
0: Haiti, I mean, you could go there and just feel like you're in the middle of the world itself. I love that. So back to your background in stand up. How did you get into stand up? Was it something that you always like, you know, enjoyed and loved? Was it just something that you wanted to do? Yeah. And give me your top five, of course.
1: Well, I actually go into this in my book. Uh, not the top five stuff. I guess as uh, how I got into it. Uh, graduation right. day. So the short answer is, it was a near death experience. I almost died one night, and I decided mm-hmm. to do it. But the long of it is, I always had. I always wanted to do late-night variety shows. Like, I grew up on, on Jay Leno. I saw him last week mm-hmm. uh, at, at a, a comedy magic club. I wanted to have wow. my own late-night talk show like that. And I didn't dance. I didn't sing. So I thought, okay, well, Fallon or, or Colbert comes out. They tell jokes every day. I want to do comedy. But it was always something that I said, one day, one day, one day. This is before the pandemic. The pandemic changed everyone's mind. to do things. But it was mm-hmm. always one day, one day, one day. Hold that thought. So at the same time, I was also a heavy guy, right? When I was in my twenties, I weighed three hundred and thirty-five pounds, twenty-six point nine stone. I'm not sure how many kilos that is, but it's. And uh, I decided to to change my life, and I lost a bunch of the weight. So I lost a hundred and fifty pounds of that. And what happened was, with the fallout of that, I had a lot of excess skin. That I got some of the skin removed and what's called a flirty uh, which is like complex tummy tuck. So I have a scar that runs from my chest to my pelvic line, and then another scar from hip to hip. And uh, when I got that surgery done, elective surgery, about three days later after that, a part of my suture line had reopened. So I had a four-inch long gash about two inches wide, just like pouring blood out after that surgery. So I was on the couch at home, uh, we tried calling the doctor. The doctor's like, I can't help you because I'm a plastic surgeon and you have to go to the ER. But the wound was so big, my mom didn't want to move me because she was there to, to help tend to my stuff. And I was having an ab surgery, so I couldn't like lay down in a certain way to hold it. So I thought I was going right. to die that night. And it's interesting when you're about to die and you get a bunch of small regrets. Like, oh man, I wish I had that job. I wish I'd tried that burger. You know, I wish i uh. kissed that girl. But the, the only two big regrets I ever had was I never tried stand-up comedy and I never rode a motorcycle. That was the two things I had. And I told myself on that couch, on my deathbed, on my couch, I was like, if I survive the night, I got to try these two things. That's the only thing that's on my mind. While I'm bleeding out, I'm thinking like, oh, I never learned how to ride a motorcycle. I should probably do this. So the next day, and that was like, the surgery was the 26th of December 13th. There's like the 28th, 29th of December. Six months later, I took a comedy class via Groupon where my graduation was going to be at the Comedy Store. I'm not sure if your listeners know, but the Comedy Store is a big deal in L.A. So my first ever comedy show was at the Comedy Store after taking a six-week course after almost dying six months before that. And so I took the class, I did my graduation show, and the feeling in the room, the vibe of my friends cheering for me or me making them laugh was something you really couldn't compare to anything. And it has been that ever since. So August 10th, Two thousand and fourteen is like my comedy anniversary. I've been doing comedy ever since.
0: Man. Oh, in top five. Sorry, and I, then I, I top forgot you. <laughs> but... So yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I yeah, grew up on Leno. Great, because I don't like him. I grew up on Leno, I up Leno. Right. Uh, and I love Trevor Noah now. I think he's very uh-huh. a very smart brother. When he does it as a writer, I know he's controversial right now. But I'm also a Chappelle fan. Jim Gaffigan made two albums about food, and I thought from a writing standpoint, that was just genius. Uh, those are my those are my main four. I don't really have a top five, but I was definitely just Chappelle, Gavigan, Leno, Chris Rock is in there too. Yeah, why not? Uh, you know, definitely when he dropped the special, it was like an event. Like you took off from work <laughs> to listen course. to the special.
0: Yeah, that's an amazing top five. And you know, it's funny because I was a huge fan of Leno back in the day too. When he had that talk show, he was I don't know what there is about him, but it feels super approachable, super warm. It's not that he tells jokes like Chappelle does or like any other comedian does. It's just he's so natural that I feel like that's probably because he's been doing it for like 25 years or longer. Yeah. But he's so natural. And that was one of the things that I've always felt like, wow, I mean, he does this for a living, like literally. Mm -hmm. Like he gets paid to talk to celebrities to make, you know, people laugh and to just enjoy himself every night. Yeah, and, like, I totally understand what you mean by that. It wasn't a dream for me to do what he did, but I totally like get why you wanted to be that and to do that. Because it definitely feels warm because it's like late at night, you're tucked in, your day is, is over and there's Leno and you're just chilling in your sofa, waiting before bed. And you're right. hearing, hearing stories and hearing like his jokes and, and then you just go to bed happy basically. Yeah. And, yeah. You know what I mean? Like that. Oh yeah, board, that's the vibe. That's amazing.
1: <laughs> also, just on the business side of things, what I liked uh-huh. about Leno, respected him about it. He always his the money he made from the Tonight Show. He always banked, like he didn't even touch that money. But he still did two hundred dates a year. So people always ask, how come he has so many cars now? It's because the right. millions he got from NBC, he was doing it. Someone asked him, like, how do you do it? What's the what is the the key to being a good comedian? And Leno said this. But it sounds like something Jay-Z would say. And he's like, write joke, tell joke, get paid. And I was like, for real? That's the most Brooklyn East Coast I've ever heard in my life. That
0: was crazy. That's amazing, man. Like, I I never heard that. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, it makes sense. Just make shit. Just make shit that's dope and put it out there, man. Amazing. Absolutely. So that was my next question for you, by the way. Like, what's the secret to success in the entertainment business and in stand-up, most importantly?
1: Uh, one of the biggest things is that you have to write things down of uh, what you consider your mm-hmm. goals to be. Entertainment, and most career paths are this way, too. But I know from entertainment, it, it kind of feels like going on a transatlantic voyage in the middle of the night. And yeah, there's some stars out there. You can look for guidance. You may get a couple of lighthouses, but it's just the black. And so if you don't write down what you think success is, when you're in it, you'll never feel like you're quite making it. And, I mean, I've been doing entertainment for 20 years. I will say 15 years in earnest. Like, I was blogging in 2001, but I will say, Mm -hmm. like, you know, I've been doing stand up since 2014, so that's eight years, you know. The only time I felt like I was successful, I'm talking about weeks, months, years of just going to clubs and being like, ah, whatever. Had albums, "Ah, ran marathons, man. Like, I don't, it was my college, my undergrad hit me up one time. It was like, hey, you're an alum. Can we do an article about you? And I told him I was working on it. I go, oh man, that's, that's crazy. And I said to myself, you have to write it down. Whether or not it's a certain money amount from the checks you make or a, a country you want to visit or a, a suite in a, in a uh, sporting event, like you have to write that stuff down to really put yourself on almost a, a compass or a map that you're getting closer and closer. You may not get it exactly the way you want, like I realize life is cruel that way because everything you ask for, you're not specific about, you'll get anyway. Like, oh yeah, I would love to get paid to talk about video games. Well, I'm a video game caster, and I didn't think yeah. that was going to happen. <laughs> I was to having a podcast about video games, but once you say that, hey, look, this is what I asked for. This is what I got. I can't get mad. This is why I have a bucket list for for life, and I and every year I write down a bucket list for the year. Don't call them goals because if you miss them. Don't be too hard on yourself. But right. always well, we say 2023, here's 20 things I want. And then it's like things that are easy, things that are challenging, things that I probably won't get, <laughs> and see how I progress year to year.
0: Wow, that's amazing advice, man. I mean, like you said, when you write stuff down, it kind of pushes you to, to pursue them, And that's what we're going for, right? Now emceeing, man, how how? Yeah, how?
1: well, for the people, <laughs> I don't know sure what your fans are. I'm not like a rapper, like I'm I'm a master of ceremonies. I won't be yeah, like yeah, oh, yeah, drop yeah. a drop a oh, I don't I don't do that. Uh. That's interesting because I came from comedy. So just a little bit of a timeline. Comedy started 2014, and my day job, which was I was in marketing. It was a tough time. I was in between jobs, and I was trying to make ends meet. Now, I don't have any kids. But I had, my girlfriend and I were living together and there's always that like need to like provide, you know, but there was weeks were going by when I wasn't providing at all. (laughs) I'm like, yo, babe, you got me? And for me, it was like, I didn't want to do that too long. So it was one of those days I got like, like desperate. I went to like one of those like, like job sites and it's like Mm -hmm. easy apply to everything. I like easy apply to everything. I didn't care. I'll garden. I'll I'll do whatever. There was a company that was based out here in Los Angeles that said, we're looking for MCs, are you good with the microphone? And I'm like, no, but I'll go, you know, and so I I applied, I was like, I did comedy. I didn't know what they wanted. Like, am I doing like, like announcements at the grocery store? Am I doing auctioneering? I had no idea. I rolled in there and it was a wedding DJ company. They had all the DJs in the world, but a lot of these guys didn't want to talk on the microphone. And they said, "Do you want to be an MC?" And I go, "I'll do it, but I don't know anything about DJing." And, and they were like, "We'll teach you how to turn it on." And I go, "Okay." And so the first two years was like on like training. They, they threw me into people's weddings, like. It was cool to say that, but you can imagine if you were getting married and you trusted this company to bring entertainment and it brought a new guy off the street <laughs> to do announcements at your wedding. It was crazy. And so I did that for a couple of years, just being the the announcer to the DJs. And then a couple of events happened when DJs didn't show up and I started DJing. And then uh, we had a bit of a growth dispute or financial dispute. So I broke off and started of my own company under my own banner in 2017 doing that wedding and event teaching mm. and emceeing and so people always ask man you sound different or, or whatever is that everything i do talked about the brand right i wanted to be a life entertainment professional everything i do works back to that i do interviews to help me fill in gap with small talk i work a microphone doing announcements as slow as i can to make sure that people hear me at these events and also on these shows and so Everything you do has to relate on something. And if it's not relating, yeah, pay your bills. Don't get me wrong. Don't go, don't starve. Don't be a starving artist. But if it's not feeding that on a fundamental level, if it's not helping you grow, then you have to evaluate and go, what can I do to replace this? And so... Emceeing was one of the main through lines. When comedy dipped, the wedding work was still there. When I had a podcast, I got picked up by Spotify. I didn't do as many wedding events. But when that show ended, I went back to wedding events. That had been the baseline for my career for so long.
0: How do you handle the pressure of live entertainment? Because it's different to a podcast where you can... Just edit out like what you said. Yeah,
1: it's a good it's a good question. I do I do think that it's a little bit different. Only because mm-hmm. with, with the DJing stuff, this is mostly their weddings. People have been thinking about their day for so long. Right. And so there's you can't certain mess things it up.
0: <laughs> you can
1: not mess it up, but then at the same time you have to realize that you're not gonna be hundred percent. And that's a little easier. You if you have a comedy show and it's low low voice on the marquee and I come out doing lame stuff going. I tried. It's not, it's not going to hit the same as as being like, hey, look. So when it comes to weddings and stuff, as long as you're prepared and you have that that list and all the pronunciations, right? The stuff before we're talking about interviews, then all you're doing is following the map. You're not so much a mixologist, a club DJ at those things. You're really more of a music concierge. You're helping them. But that's not a sexy answer to your question. So it comes down to like mm-hmm. uh, stand up and, and, and working. I'm always a big fan of leaning into it, right? So... If you think a bit silly, you have to go 100%. If you think a joke is dumb, you have to say it. If you have to look at someone's eyes to get them to engage with you, that's important too. Those are little things. Because when it comes to stand-up comedy, here's a hot tip or a hot take. It's not about telling jokes. Telling jokes is secondary. If you look at someone who's long-form stuff, like, like a, a... Chappelle. Okay, like Chappelle. Perfect example. Chappelle did a 20-minute bit about Emmett Till that had one punchline in it. And the reason is that the the primary thing is that you engage with someone. They get your personality. They know what you stand for. They know what makes you laugh or makes you frustrated. And they're on board. And then you can pepper things with humor. I think that's way more important. So if you think about saying, hey, look, that sounds funny, but I'm not so sure if I can do it, try it out. Because if you look hesitant, people pick up on that. Oh, he looks uncomfortable. I don't know. My first ever comedy show, I won't forget this, my first ever comedy show, I was nervous until they called my name. When they called my name, I was locked in step. However, however, I was trying to pretend to be a comedian my first time. Then I thought I'll pace the stage because that's what comedians did. They had the right. microphone. They did this. The stage right. I was on was like seven feet wide. So if you watch the clip, it looks like I'm nervous, even though I technically wasn't. And people told me that I go. Oh my gosh, because I didn't really lean into. It. I wasn't being myself. I was doing an impression of what I thought comedians did.
0: Doesn't that work? Because I thought fake it till you make it much kind of worked in that space. That's what I always heard.
1: I think fake it till you make it to get the gig. If you're talking mm-hmm. to a promoter, and you're saying, look, I've been doing this three years, I know what I'm doing. You gotta hire me. You gotta you gotta fake it till you make it. But if you've been to comedy shows when someone comes out being super extra and you're like, I don't buy yeah. it. Comedy has yeah. shifted. When I was a kid, guys like Seinfeld and Paula Poundstone got on stage and told you jokes. And we all go, that's a good joke. But now people want to buy into authenticity. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. if you break dance on weekends, make break dance and jokes. But yes, fake it to your make is important, especially when it comes to your marketing, when it comes to, to networking, when it comes to getting yourself booked. Like that stuff, I will totally say you fake to your make. You got to, because no one's going to toot your horn for you. Don't be like, I don't want to toot my own horn, but you have to. Let them say, stop tooting your horn. Because look, the life's short, man, especially after this pandemic. How are you going to get to the surface? How are you going to get to the top without being a fan for yourself?
0: How do you learn that shit, man? I'm not good at that. Like, yeah. like for some people, it's more natural than others. But how do you, like, lean into that stuff and do it better and, and more naturally?
1: That's a good question. And that's a question that unfortunately afflicts minorities, immigrants, and women more than anyone else because we tend to be marginalized. Now, my specific story, how I got to learn it, was I had to eat, right? So I got out of my day job space because I got fired on Thanksgiving Day one year, and uh, I was a DJ. And I had to sell myself on the phone for these couples and tell me, I know that guy has 20 reviews. Pick me because whatever. And I used to be so nervous. I used to go out outside the cold and say, look, babe, I gotta make this phone call and try my hardest to, to make myself palpable. Don't do that. Don't start a DJ company. And, and that. I wouldn't <laughs> say. But a lot of times, it's good to visualize the void. It's good to visualize jumping off that cliff or going down that roller coaster route, right? The worst thing people are gonna do is say, no, thank you. And that does sting. Don't get me wrong. Don't be like, ah, oh, it's fine. It does sting, but like, you'll survive. You'll do it again. If you're at a, a corporate meeting and there's always that one guy that cuts you off, but you know your ideas are fire, one of these times you want to get up and say, I see what you're saying, but let me reiterate what I mean. It doesn't happen overnight, but when it does, it's sparked to a flame. And you'll try it more and more and more. And this is When I did comedy in the first couple of years, it sucked. When I tried to do DJ stuff, it sucked, but over time with reps and understanding that you know, I got to provide, I got to help out people, got to make do for me. And I have mouths to feed or whatever. That's what I got to put me over.
0: Everything that you do involves yeah. speech, right? And, you know, now talking to you and listening to your stuff, I realize that you're very easy to listen to. Is that something natural? And, <laughs> no, for real, for real. And is that something that came naturally to you or was it something that you had to work through?
1: It's definitely work. Being from the East Coast, I'm a fast talker. If you're on the street like this, I talk like this all the time. And a lot of people go like, what are you talking about? But coming from New York, I went to school in Florida. And that's where my accent went. People always say, you don't sound like you're from Brooklyn. I was like, well, Mm -hmm. you're trying to tell parents of their kids that they are going to be written up in college as an RA. You have to slow it down with ma'ams and sirs. So I talk to myself every day, out loud. Whether it's commercials, whether or not it's intros, Mm -hmm. like... I got this podcast today and it says Clarity with TK coming today. And I try to do it as (laughs) as broad as I can, as radio voice as I can, because when I come down and I do your show, I don't want to stumble over names. I don't want to get things wrong. If I'm doing an esport thing, I don't want to get players' genders wrong. I always practice an hour or two hours a day. I I know know. it's for for musicians, it's different with their actual instruments. I don't play an instrument, but if this is my instrument, then people are paying me to do things at a certain level. I can say, excuse me. I can cough once in a while. I'm not saying I'm a robot, but I can't go on stage and be like, um, the next thing is brethren, like that's how you get boot off stage. You know, like that's what they pay you for.
0: What's the process of your writing when it comes to stand-up comedy?
1: So everyone's a little different. I do more of the word bubble thing. There's always a topic or issue at hand. Whatever that topic is, visualize it. And then I tell my students when I do comedy um, seminars, what makes you angry about this? What makes you annoyed by this? What makes you feel happy about this? And so, for example, if I said school, and I said, what about school makes you really upset? What about school you love? And that's usually how I start branching out things. And obviously you could do more hot button issues if you want to be a political comic or, or a day-to-day mm. comic. But that's what people are buying into now. It isn't so much of set up punchline. People go to a Chris Rock show, they go, I wonder what Chris Rock feels about Kanye West, for example. And that's what people buy into. So it's up to, it's up to Chris Rock to be like, well, you know, you know," and have that as well. So you have that topic in hand and your perspective. Now people can do that and be as controversial as they want. You can be as benign as you want. But ultimately, people are paying for your point of view. And that's something that's a good way of, of getting that down or just saying that, how you feel, what triggers you when you say this word or this topic.
0: Love it. Love it. It feels like you got the questions already like in your mind and you know that if you choose a topic, you know exactly what you're going to do with it. And like, yeah. I feel like that comes from experience. Am I right?
1: A little bit of that. It comes from experience, but like as as the artist, you don't really think about, the, the answer to your question, I mean, it's literally the day of the pandemic, I was at my college in Florida teaching kids comedy. And it was really the first time I had to like put like my thoughts into words. And so I practiced that two hour seminar, like for three months. Cause I was like, why is my college calling me to teach these kids? Uh, but that's what it really, what it comes from. So it, it is repetition. It is kind of that, that kind of thing. But also once you have that thought process down, then a heckler can't stop you. You know what I mean? Like mm. if you if you so are into again, structure but but the flexibility of structure. Right. If you come into a show going, here's my joke, one, two, three, four, five, if someone goes, not even a bad heckle, if someone goes, wait enough for you, flow oh, and I go, Thank you. Okay, cool. where was I? Then it's a wrap, right? That breaks okay. that that engagement. So it's always mm. good to have that stuff planned and then be able to go flexible if something pops up.
0: But you don't have your bullet points in front of you in a in a stand-up club.
1: Like when it comes down to like like set lists, like hour-long shows, here's something you didn't really know. Like people actually keep that written down. There's some comics that actually have like their set list and it's written like songs from an album on the, sh- on the sh- ground there. But you go to a comedy club and you're doing a good 10 minutes or 15 minutes, you're not really doing that. It's memorization. Memorization and it's it is repetition. This is why I go back to the structure. There's some comics that think of their entire five-minute set or 10-minute set and they practice that set. I'm kind of more like, here's my two-minute bit. Here's my two-minute bit. And then when I'm on stage, I decide on the fly, hey, let me try this joke with you guys. Oh, you don't like that? Let me try this joke. Oh, you like that? Let me go in this direction to keep that more fluid like that. So people always ask me, is like comedy like an art or is it a science? It's, it's like you're almost like a sport. You know what I mean? Like you can try a formation or a tactic or you can try a pitch. And it may work or you may get booed or worse, get no reaction at all. That's worse to get booed, is people go, "Mm." (laughs) you know what I mean? Uh, But but that, that's where it really comes from, being able to be that structured and flexibility.
0: I want to talk about podcasting, how you got into that, and how it's been coming along for you, and how it overlapped with everything you do, because you do emceeing, so you basically talk for a living, you DJ for a living, you do stand-up for a living, so all of it, like I said, involves speech, and then, of course, podcasting, you're obviously going to do podcasting, and be good at it. So, but how did that happen? <laughs> I mean, I'm
1: good at it. I'm, I'm, I, uh, so I, I, I had a podcast years ago called 26 Stone. It was, it was like a weight loss journey type podcast about how uh, I lost the weight and all that. So I had that, like that base model experience. But New Amsterdam Radio is my flagship show um, where I sit and talk with creatives and entrepreneurs, quite like like your show. And uh, it was not, it wasn't supposed to have guests at all. The original idea was I was going to grab my phone and talk about creative things or things that were happening in the news, but like in a creative way. Hey, look, Tesla has a new Cyber Truck coming soon. What's that mean for you as a creator? And there really was the pandemic. And my homegirl from high school calls me up one day. She goes, yo, Flo, I'm going to be a guest on your podcast next week. And I go, I don't have guests on my podcast. She goes, so? And that was it? Like, that was a wrap. Yeah. I, I just had to learn how to get guests on a show, and, and I was built from there. And the first six or seven months, it really was a pandemic chat because, like many creatives, we were considered non-essential and we were told to stay home. And so I would call other creatives and entrepreneurs and say, hey, look, how is it holding up for you? I see it pretty rough. The reason why it's called New Amsterdam Radio is that I used to have a um, stationary brand called New Amsterdam. I met Billy up a couple of years ago. I still have the domain. But that's really where the show reps have come from. Sitting down with different people from different walks of life and trying to find, back to the structure, a structure to a show that's similar enough that when people come back every week, it doesn't sound crazy, but flexible enough to take in other people who may be an author or maybe a fitness coach or something like that. You don't want to go in there and ask something too structured or Richard. And during the pandemic, my first year, not going to comedy clubs, I had a podcast network. I had nine podcasts going at the same time. I had New AM Sam Radio. I had Draped in Gold Professional Wrestling. I had Commander's Log Star Trek. I had Flobo Saw on Netflix. I had What's Up Flobo and What's Up Flobo After Hours. I had so many other ones just because it was like fun for me, kept me sane, being able to tell jokes on the fly and help these other creatives out during the pandemic. Now, everyone's kind of gone back to work. New AM Sam Radio is still going strong. I think we're on episode 187 this week, uh, but probably 190 by the time this cuts out there. Just to be able to do that every week is kind of a blessing. But yeah, it really is coming down and sitting down with different people, cool folks like yourself. and Just ask them what's going on with their lives.
0: Why though? Why did you like choose the format of podcasting and not like the YouTube channel, let's say, or whatever?
1: Yeah, so there was a time where a lot of these shows are streamed. Much like I use StreamYard, like I use Restream. So they kind of have that element there but to me, the originally was just a conversation. I was on the phone to myself intimately. When my high school friend says you're gonna be on be the gas, I wanted to recreate that. I wanted to have that little under the covers like blanket. Hey, what right. are you working on? And that was kind of the original concept. But you know, things get bigger and bigger, you get more gear and you realize, hey, look, you're <laughs> at home. Just next to the same people who have more money, this is kind of a flat thing. It became a show show. But I really wanted to, to drive home the fact that we're all creative. It, it, the city of creatives is the whole concept of New Amsterdam. That's kind of a group from there. But that's, that's really the reason why. I mean, yeah, there's YouTube clips everywhere. It's available in, in, in video version. But having that little, like, intimate conversation was always fun.
0: Awesome, man. So, you know, you say you choose creative ways to talk about the news. What do you mean by that exactly? And how do you figure out like that process?
1: Yeah. So I have to have a perspective on it. Like I know there's some people that want to be topical for the sake of being topical, but I realize there's not every issue needs my take on it. <laughs> mm. So if it's something that goes back to my comedy structure, something I have a perspective on, something that makes me go, Oh, that's stupid. Oh, that's great. Oh, that's pretty cool. Oh, uh, that definitely comes one of the things I talk about. But the thing is, how can I add value to someone listening? How can mm. I be helpful mm. or how can I be entertaining? I can't say, yeah, I saw Avatar way of the water yesterday. It's a height. It's like, okay, yeah, <laughs> it's a perspective, but what's that really good to help out to anyone else? And so, mm-hmm. for example, not to like put every mm-hmm. product on, on the show, I'm going to toot my own horn because why not? What? But if Flobo saw it on Netflix, it's a Netflix review show. I go over the Netflix originals and I don't break down every scene. I tell people, this is what I will give the, the show or movie, a 7, 8 out of 10 or whatever. But more importantly, who is this movie for? Hey, look, I wouldn't watch it. My mom would totally listen to this if she was making food on a Sunday afternoon with this in the background. Oh, that's not my thing. But my dad loves submarine movies. And so if mm-hmm. you're listening to the show, even if it's a movie I don't like, the, the value, the helpfulness is, oh, wow, he's recommended this movie to somebody else. I think mm. a lot of content creators and comedians and people who do these things, forget about that. It's like, I got thoughts on things. But I'm like, okay, but is your thoughts entertaining or, or or informational or helpful? I think mm. that's really the key to make sure that your show is healthy uh, to watch it grow.
0: Yeah, and people to tune in week in, week out. Because if they find value, they'll definitely click and they can apply whatever you're saying to their own lives. If not, then they just tune on
1: and it Absolutely, also helps man. out your structure too, because there's going to be a time where you get like a, a really dud of a guest, and you're mm. like, this person just, just they whack.
0: <laughs> you yeah, know? But I had, I had man. I had bound.
1: Like, <laughs> it are happens, right? you're like, one
0: and You're like, I... okay, what am I going to do with this?
1: What right. Gonna... Like, yo, you come on a show and you lame. What? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but, but, the, but the idea is like, if you have enough goodwill, people go, oh, wow, the, the TK show tells me so much cool stuff that, okay, it was kind of an off episode. I'm coming back next week, though. So, you don't get that if you sit there going like, mm, here's my random thoughts about whatever
0: with that kind of. How do you deal with that though? Like like I said, like I I had like one guest, like a long time ago, who was just like you said, a dud. Like he was slow, he was not like entertaining at all and The subject matter was super interesting, but the person himself was not. And so when I was editing that stuff, I was like, should I put this out? Should I not put this out? Like, I promised the person that, you know, we would record this and put it out. So there's, you know, I have some sort of duty there, but I never did. I wanted to cut it into clips. But, you know, how do you deal with that kind of guess, man?
1: Yeah, I go back to Craig Ferguson, who had a show, a late night show, and he says, you're okay to have a bad show every once in a while. If you have like bad weeks of shows, it's time to go. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So the original thing is going to be even before my interview for people like this. If I don't know them very well, I do overwrite questions. There's questions I make a point not to ask because if your conversation is good, I don't need it. So let's say it's already past the point. You're on the show. They, you thought they're going to be hype and they're not. I would stop down. And so what I would do then I go, okay, these questions may be interesting, but I'm bored. or I don't feel the vibe. Let me ask you questions about you as a person. Let me ask you questions about what makes you happy. Let me ask you what a day off looks like. Let me ask you your typical day. Let me ask you about your your home life to really get the human element. Because if I don't understand cryptocurrency or nuclear physics or whatever, I understand having to drop work to go pick up your kid for school. And then that goes back to the human element and we go back to what works and go back to the questions. And so, yeah, there's sometimes you look at a show, you're like, it's not like my greatest, but I got to sell this person as multifaceted or I got to be able to put my new joke that I've been working on in this conversation, they didn't realize it, that's a win for me. So it may not be the most banging interview, but there's small victories you can take in there. It goes, oh, hey, we talked about chocolate. We lit up. Oh, he loves Fast and Furious. I love Fast and Furious. Right. <laughs> and then you can say, okay, back to the drawing board next week.
0: It feels like in the market today, everyone is going niche. And I do understand that. Like, You don't want to tune into a show where they usually talk about sports and now they're talking about help. You know what I mean?
1: Right, right, right,
0: right. And that's what everyone is going for today. As a marketer, how do you handle that with your show?
1: So I like to think about like, there are our phantom niches and our actual niches. And, and I'll give an example. When I first started doing comedy, because I grew up uh, in a working class neighborhood in the nineties and didn't have cable, we had broadcast TV. My Mm -hmm. influences are like old TV shows from the seventies. Like, like or 80s, like Matlock and and, and what's happening and, and the Jeffersons or whatever. So when I first right. started doing comedy, I thought my niche was that I was an old soul. I thought that I was going to be like a modern throwback. Talk about how it is uh, being a young buck, but I have these old tendencies. And guess what? I got old myself. And then that doesn't really work anymore. And so I realized that when I tell the jokes I think are funny or, or worrisome or things, I let the audience decide when it comes to that. So New Amsterdam Radio, which is based off the New Amsterdam Notebook line, was originally just for creative people. They were just for people that painted or broke dance or whatever. And then what happened was I got my first entrepreneur. And they go, oh, I want I to be an entrepreneur on your show. It's like, well, how does that work? And I go, well, you still have to think about things. And there's a process. And I found the, the, the bridge to that. So, yes, on the surface, New Amsterdam Radio is, is a very general show. But over time, my audience dictated the niche. Now mm. it's for everyone. Well, I got one of those like demographic, like those like ratings and reports you can order. Yep. Basically, yep. my audience member are women, twenty to yep. thirty-four, who are college educated, who are contemplating entrepreneurship. That's my niche. Oh. It wasn't the plan. It was I'm going to have conversations with people, but I let the people decide. I compare it to the former president of the United States, Donald Trump, and you can have your own opinions of the guy. I'm not trying to get into that, but yeah. here's somebody who had no political experience and ran for the most politically experiencing a job of the planet and said, let America choose. And they did. <laughs> they, they <were> <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, dude, I could never have that kind of confidence. And so that's what New episode <laughs> was. I didn't know what it's going to be. I didn't want to, yeah, it's kind of cool. I got a person with a British accent saying, welcome to new abs and I'm ready on the podcast for creatives. But like, it was never supposed to be a certain kind of thing. But over time, it kind of had its own thing because it just had an audience that followed the show.
0: Hey, man, he's the funniest dude on the planet. So you see comedy can take you far, man. He's got it. (laughs) It's just like, all right, bro. (laughs) <laughs> like me did it, man. He did, yeah. he did the most difficult job in the world. Like just doing comedy of being himself. Like, what else do you need? Like, his proof that anyone can do anything. That's what I'm saying, yo.
1: If that was a brother or or anyone else, I'm like, yo, I don't know if I could do that, man. I don't know. I don't know I if I can. can. <laughs> he was, I know. I was like, yo, I'm gonna go for it.
0: That's what you were talking about. Like when you've been marginalized your entire life, we see obstacles instead of opportunities. Hmm. But when you're you're not a minority everything you see is awesome, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, right? like, when you know that in your community, like, by the time you get to your car, you <laughs> like, <laughs> it take, your life to a different turn and you start making different decisions. Uh, so you get it. Say, you know, it comes down to that, man. Yeah, Absolutely. you am kidding. The power of comedy, man. We were just touching on that a little bit. I feel like if you're a good comic, you can literally walk it anywhere and get whatever you want. Mm-hmm. How do you, like, work? on the human side of comedy because like when you're a stand-up comedian you're on the scene and it's not a conversation it's a monologue how do you use that to your advantage
1: there is something that you really can't like diminish and that is in our society we do revere satire Uh, I grew up reading like Mark Twain and and Will Rogers and all that so like there is that there's an element and I don't want to sound like I'm self-serving like like my my jokes are the forefront of it's not that at all I, I I have some fun I'm being myself with people but there there is something to be said about being able to break the tension in the room and it's not just at a comedy club because people are going to laugh but there's people in the corporate world who are paid thousands of dollars to go out there and break the ice for corporate events right when we can all laugh at something it's kind of like like food of words. When you call out right. on something and share a joke or a moment, that's an instant memory. And and those things are intangible. And because they're intangible, they're valuable. So there is something I think about when I get booked for a show. I'm not going to open mic or whatever. I get booked for a show. I go, how much tickets? I always ask. Because I don't usually get paid. They're like, oh, $5, $10. I go, okay. That means these people worked two hours or three hours to afford my show. Now it's up to me to try to Alleviate their worries for that time period to make it an even mm. exchange. And that mm. I think that's why I think that exchange is because if it works and everyone's laughing and everything aisles, you get stopped to go, That was a great show. That was amazing. You know, I didn't really think about the problems. I go, My job is done. And you're right. Things do open, doors do open, opportunities do open. But at the same time, if you half ass, and you i all do the same old joke I did 10 years ago, it still works, You know what I mean? And I give people a half effort then those doors close. In fact, there are some comedian friends I know, I won't name names, who had the same bit from like 10 years ago, wondering why they're not getting booked, saying, well, the reason why I'm not getting booked is because everyone wants TikTok stars. I'm like, no, your act is stale. But I'm not going to tell you that to your face because you, you can tell if your audience is not engaging with you on some level, then it's time to freshen up your act.
0: How do you decide whether it's time to freshen up your act? What I mean by that, and I'm playing devil's advocate here, mm-hmm. but if a joke works and you're not a big shot like Chris Rock, who's had specials that everyone has seen and everyone is familiar with the joke, and you're just doing like comedy clubs and, you know, you're doing comedy clubs like maybe in different cities where people haven't heard your joke before. Why would you have to, to freshen it up? And what's, what's the idea behind that?
1: Uh, there's two reasons behind that. One, we live in a very social media world, right? So now you're competing with comedians on TikTok, for example, and then people who do jokes on TikTok anyway. So you want to be able to be as fresh as you can. And, and and jokes can be ran to the ground before you even get there. If you downloaded my album, American for Now, available now or wherever, and then you booked me for a show and that album's been out four or five years ago, and I did that same joke. It's like, okay, whatever. It's kind of like being a, a musician like you can do encores of classic songs there's nothing wrong with that but you don't want to do the same song all the time the flip side of that is also the second part of that is as an artist which again not to sound self-serving but we are right we're not mm-hmm. we're not you should have that desire to say what else i got what else is in my repertoire if i, if I like fashion okay what's the season's collection or or what have you i'm not saying it to change jokes that often but you, there should be something in there being like oh this is something else that makes me laugh Let me see if people think this is funny as well. So you're fighting other comedians. You're fighting social media. There's a reason why Weird Al Yankovic doesn't do parody albums anymore, because everyone does parodies. But as an artist, you should be able to push yourself and go, okay, that's in the bank. I'll use these if I'm losing them. What else can I do to make it funny? Because also, it's kind of an unwritten rule. If you get a special or if you get an album, those jokes are all burned. You really can't use those same jokes on the album again unless you're doing an album of old jokes, you know. So mm. always have that mentality to keep wish forward.
0: Is, that, is a Netflix special in the works or something?
1: Man, crossing fingers. You know, it, it's <laughs> it, no, but thank you so much because that, that's a kick in the pants I need. So just to give you a backstory about my career. Twenty right twenty three, bro. That's it. I want I want album three to be the best one yet. The first album, "Cookies and Beer," was really like I did it. American for now was so much more, more mature and that it was a through line through it. And I was able to build upon it. But that's been so long. We lived in the pandemic. I'm trying to do that. Because I mean, netflix got deep pockets. But even that, just to have another album to my name is something I know from that, all the plates I'm spinning. That's the one I know that needs the most love right now is that comedy on wax. Not like doing a show here and there. Like having album three, having special number two at Ready to Go. So thank you for that.
0: I mean, I see, I see it happen. I see it happen, and I hope we see you someday on that stage, man. See, I did. Give me
1: both. is there's shows in France, let me know. I'll fly on. <laughs> I'll do it.
0: <laughs> i mean, you're all welcome. I'll definitely check it out, man. I'll check it out for you. Yeah. Uh, anytime. So, uh, no, I was going back to America for now, man. Why did you call it that, man? Like, uh, what's behind the time, What's the story?
1: Yeah. Well, okay. So, for... Context: My parents are immigrants. They're from Barbados, and they came to the country in, in 1970. So I am essentially American through and through. My, this is my accent. and I do got a Caribbean accent. And for a lot of us first generation Americans, I mean if your parents from somewhere else, you yep. grow up with, you grow up of two worlds, but of neither. Right? Like, yeah, so you, you got parents from X, but you from Y. But you go to, you 100%. go to school, and it's like, where are you from, and all that stuff. Right. And so, as an American kid, let's say I denounce. My Caribbean heritage, I I was around American friends. I felt that I was more American. And as the political climate changed in 2015, 16, 17, it was unfounded rumors that first-generation Americans could, could be considered to be deportation candidates and all that. I go, man, I chose one side of this, not as much as I want to. Maybe I didn't give enough love to my Asian side. I thought about my Barbadian side, you know, of, of my heritage and, and culture that. And so I always felt I was American, but if someone could point me and go go back to where you come from or you being deported or why would you ever want to do this? I would go I'm I'm American for now. Ancestry.com does DNA tests. And I've heard plenty of times that that would not be a product in Europe. Because if I was an Italian dude and I married an Italian woman, my kids were Italian. But in the United States, it's like, well, you know, I'm one-quarter Welsh, one-fifteenth Algerian, and my wife, she's 3 tenths Polish. So that means my kids are mixed. Like, we always want to be this unique kind of confederation of things. But when everyone gets mad, it's always like, I'm American. I love my country. If you don't like it, you get out.
0: <laughs> so which one is it? it? Are
1: we all unique or should we all fall in line? I had no idea that was the idea of the album.
0: When things are going right, everyone is American, like you said, but then when things go wrong, it's like you start, you know, bringing out like where that person is from. When in reality, like we say white people, but white people ain't all the same too. Like, you know, like the Irish and the Italians and the, you know, the East European Jews and whatnot, like they're, they white, but they're not all like the same white. They're not all British. Maybe it's also this unity that we also lack in the community where we're like, Okay, maybe I'm Caribbean, but in reality, I eat plantain so that's like what most African-Americans do eat, and Africans in Africa do eat too. So maybe we do have a shared heritage, and that we should put forward a little bit more in unity, oh, yeah. instead of just dividing ourselves into this and that. You know what I mean?
1: Perfect example. There's so many like food variants where like we call it one thing and there's like a similar version, bread, that like, that kind of right. thing. But I was okay. never a political comic. In fact, I'm anti-political. I'm one of the few comics out there in my class that don't that doesn't do it, but I felt that I was getting pushed into it for things like, like you were saying. To me, which is so interesting how it was kind of like, hey, if you don't pick a side, you're wrong. And I'm like, I, I can't. You know, but but you're right, we are bounded by food like cumbia to to West African beats to 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 calypso to chutney music, which we call chutney music, is so similar on 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 the breakbeats or tamales are are called conkeys are called pasteles. Right. they're so similar, but they always go different shade of color. His mom's moving in right. he likes the mets like it's always it's always great
0: and that's why like, like tribalism we get through sports, for example or. For some other people, it could be through like a different form, but like, I feel like sports, especially for us men, is that thing where your team is your child, like your team is where you're from. And I wrote this piece about a tribute to hip hop at some point. And that piece was about how hip hop was my culture. It's like, it's not where my parents are from. It's not where I was born. It's not like the people I hang out with because, you know, there's people from all walks of life. But it's like hip-hop that binds me with other people. I understand the culture. I'm part of the culture. I represent the culture. It's a literal culture of itself. And to be part of it is what, you know, a lot of people get from being like in a group of fans of the Mets or, you know, being in a team. And uh, all of us look for that kind of sense of belonging to a group.
1: It's funny with hip-hop specifically because like... It was one of the subcultures of the time period. I am talking about like the, from the late late 80s to like the early 2000s before it got commercialized. Not in a bad way, it just got really big. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. like, it was really one of the only genres or cults that like accepted anybody. It's like if you understood exactly. living in the city and you got no money, come home. <laughs> exactly. you know I mean? Like we had freestyles you know? from everywhere. You know, it's just mm-hmm. it a cool thing about the culture back then. It's a little different now. I'm not hating it, it's a little different now. But back then it was like Absolutely. we had all the immigrant kids were hip hop heads because
0: rock was hundred percent You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, and you learned you learn how to speak with other people through hip hop. Like you learned, like I learned how to talk to my peers like through listening to hip hop and to You know, tuning into, you know, video music box and, you know, all of these shows that, you know, took it way back and showed you what the streets was about. And although I was young at that point, I still felt like the vibe and the energy. And of course, yeah, today is different, but everything evolves. Hip hop has been around like next year is going to be 50 years of hip hop, man, like Mm -hmm. of hip hop history. So. It's a long time. And of course, culture has changed, but we still have the basics of it. And I'm happy to see that a lot of people could take that passion of theirs and storytelling in a different form, because you can tell a story through breakdance and you can tell stories like through graffiti. And that was a way of expression for these people who had no other way to talk. There was no podcasting back there. There was no social media. There was none of that, you know? And so that was like the only way to get something that you felt out into the world and the fact that it became like so global like you could literally go to the slums of africa and hear 50 Cent banging literally like walking around like the slums of of africa of asia of south america like i've been to these places and i've experienced that and the fact that you you hear that and you're like yo that's from back home like that that was from around the corner it's crazy man to be part of that not as an artist but just to be part of that culture it's like it's, it's heartwarming you know what i mean
1: shout out to Bit visit box man that was a deep
0: country. yeah
1: man. <laughs>
0: bro that one the tv man like yeah for it, sure man
1: that, that's as you know you're from new york bro like <laughs> <laughs> oh man
0: one last question for you before i let you go man um What are some of the most important skills to master for up-and-coming stand-up comedians, aspiring stand-up comedians, people who just want to, you know, tell stories, make people feel good about life and optimistic?
1: This is kind of like advice for anything. It will help for for stand-up comedians, but be yourself. And I don't mean that like the be yourself. <laughs> but like, if if, some, if you got a, a bad deal to do a show, be okay to walk uh-huh. away. If you don't want to travel and you have reasons, then do that. If you have a joke that you really believe in and it's not offensive to anyone on purpose, then do it for it. Be yourself in that way. I mean, obviously be authentic, but like, be able to do that. But also, respond to emails as quick as possible. I don't know what industry you are. A lot of times, I get the business because mm-hmm. I respond. Hey, we need someone for a show tonight. Can you do it? Yeah. I always say six hours no. or less. Whatever works for you, works for you. I'm not saying to be a slave to your phone, but so many times there's just money and opportunity on the table because someone dropped out. Someone that's way above you can't do it and looking for someone to fill in, and you get in and you fit in and you over-deliver, that's when people go, let me get your card. I'm going to bring you back. Doesn't matter if it's DJing. Doesn't matter if it's comedy. If you show up, ready to go, fill in someone's spot, and you say deuces, they go, hey, hey, here's the bag. Let me call you. <laughs> Who's your peoples? You know what I mean? That's how you work
0: on yeah. And so ready or not, you just go in.
1: That's where fake it, tip make it comes from. Till so you get the gig and then you can be authentic. But and you there with your stuff already gone with the tools, with some back, with portfolios, with past clients, with past shows, a real whatever. Get the reps in, save your work on a way you can show someone or a business card and then just hit up everyone and someone goes, can you do it? Just say yes. And then when you get there, be yourself and be authentic.
0: All right, man. Well, thank you so much for all that. Now let's play a little game. I got like three questions for you. You got to choose like this, say that. And I'm going to try to make it as hard as possible from what I gathered because I had like some stuff written down, but it doesn't necessarily apply to you. So I'm going to make it apply to you specifically, man.
1: Let's do this. Better be for the Yankees though. I'll be upset about the Yankees. (laughs)
0: East Coast or West Coast? I oh, no, 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 the West Coast, bro.
1: Oh, man, look. The answer is not both, but I'm going to say both. First, I'm going to say it's cool to be in, in L.A. where I am right now because it's a city of creatives. And so you can hit someone up and be like, yo, man, what album you working on? Or you got a show you can do? Like It's cool to have that like artist collective. But it's also cool to go home where no one gives a crap about that and be like, yo, are you making money or not? It's cool to keep yourself in perspective. Um... I've been my whole entire adult life here in L.A., but I'm still a Brooklyn kid. I left on terms for work. I didn't move out the city to move out. I left Brooklyn to do this, so I always felt like it's unfinished business there. So I'm going to say East Coast.
0: Oh, I love that answer, man. Like, it feels like it comes from the heart.
1: (laughs) Yeah, man. All right,
0: well, 2023, man. Netflix special or a big bag from elsewhere?
1: I... Hmm. these are hard man. because I, I, I literally said that I need to give the most love to comedy but I will say uh-huh. what, what has got me more opportunities and, and scared the bag now is video games I do esports esports stuff has been so good to me that it's more likely to get a call for that to do announcing for esports and comedy but I do think comedy is something I need to do so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say the Netflix special I'm not sure how much money is going to be I'm gonna
0: <laughs> I said a big bag though. Yeah, I know, oh, I know. Man. But
1: I yeah, because I, I feel like if I if I did the comedy special, I can still grind and get the esport thing going, but I think the special needs something be need to push. So I'm gonna do that.
0: Why esports? And I haven't asked that question because yeah. you brought it up like several times, but why esports, man? Same, are you are you, Same, you're, thing. You're... same okay.
1: thing. I played and a game you... called Rocket League, which is basically soccer football <laughs> with but with not... cars that, that can fly through the air and stuff. And I play uh-huh. it personally because when I was starting my own business, I was to get so defeated losing business. I was so afraid to toot my own horn that I would say, let me just play this game for the hour, clear my head and get back to it. When the pandemic happened and everything shut down, I joined a league for seniors, which is basically people of the age of 30 who play this game. Oh, wow. That's yeah. a senior. Yeah, that's a senior. <laughs> bruh uh and and they had a tournament and they said hey look you're a comedian can you just tell some jokes some old people jokes while this tournament's happening so it's a, it's a car <laughs> game so it's like pull over grandpa or time for your nap you know whatever so i did that okay. uh and they said oh my gosh you you're good do you want to become a caster i'm like what's that well do you have discord i'm like what's that <laughs> and i had to learn everything from <laughs> scratch like i didn't know what discord was didn't know what casting was what wonder what shoutcasting was. But since I'm a professional wrestling fan, I added that element to video games because everyone who plays these games were like, that is a good move. That was a better move than Napoleon. But I'm like, oh, how can he recover? It's going to be late. Look at the time. And so I gave that Michael Cole WWF vibe to this game. And that's opened so many doors for me because I could tell jokes from this chair about people playing this game in earnest and I've been able to go to tournaments and lands and we do some things for the top flight for that. The studio has gave me a title in the game. Like that to me was a whole level of business. I didn't know existed if I wasn't stuck in my house during the pandemic. So that to me is like the most, like, like the highest trajectory right now is esports mm-hmm. commentary. Cause I can do other games or whatever, but comedy is like, what about me, bro? You were the original. <laughs> so I know what you mean when you say what's what's more important now.
0: Of course. You get some of the best tips from WWF. What did you mean by that, by the way?
1: This is, this is actually, I, everything I learned in life, I learned, I learned through wrestling, I think, is on the back of my yeah. head. So the thing about wrestling, it is presented as a sport, but you and I both know it's, it's pretty determined. It's not scripted, but like there's winners and losers and all that. So it's not a right, sports right, right. sport. I have right. to say it's theater in the round, but people who like Shakespeare get really, really offended. But because it's, it's predetermined and it's entertainment, people on commentary are commentating on combat, but there's also other story elements being thrown at you at the same time. And so I go back to engagement. I am not on stage to tell you jokes and say, watch it cross the road to get the other side. Good night. I am here to make you feel something. Whether it's angry or, or, or relief or whatever, that's more important. When you're watching a video game and you're watching it, yeah, you can see the score on the screen. You're not dumb. You know, you can see who's mm. winning, who's losing. Mm. But mm. it's my job to let you know, hey, if I was a losing car right now, it would be going through my mind because I gotta get this goal back to make things level again. Soccer does that sometimes, hockey does that sometimes, right. football does that sometimes. Right. But wrestling, because there's no score, because there's no rankings, there's no statistics. Everything is all psychological. Everything's on that element. So I said, no one's doing that. I have the timing for it. Let me go on and be that guy and be the psychological guy because I'm also a low level player. So I know how it is to suck at the game too. Uh, why not do that? And so that's really been my calling card. Everyone's like, oh, your your analogies, your perspective on things are so different, unique, and fresh. No one's really doing that. Hey, you want to do this? This I can tell you how I got big. Perfect. Is that going back to everything we said before? Mm-hmm. This game has regions all throughout the planet. And someone hit me up and said, hey, look, we're looking for a caster for the SSA region, Sub-Saharan Africa, South Africa, Reunion Island. Can you do it? Now, I live in Los Angeles, which means I have to be mm. up at 5 o'clock in the morning for these things. Oh, you best believe I said yes, because it's a top level of an, of an international region. And when I did that, that's when the studio of the game said, who are you? <laughs> Let's let's work on the college circuit in the United States because I was like, I'll do it. I'm, I'm going to go out of the reps. And it all worked out for me.
0: You should look up people in the Middle East, too. I got a friend. I'll probably hit him up for you if you want. But yeah, he works in the esports company in Saudi Arabia. Oh, and weird. and they do like these big ass shows with millions of people tuning in and whatnot. And it feels like it's a big deal there. And I know that Saudi Arabia wants to become the biggest Eastward exporters. So they put in like real money into it. I'll be the first real.
1: one to admit that the thing I know about KSA today is that WWE goes there twice a year for, for their events. So you see the outside, you see the cities, you see the people. So yep. like way better than what CNN was doing. So yeah, absolutely. I'll totally. Everything Russell works out for me. Yeah, I'll definitely check it out if that ever works out, you know, to go out there gotcha. and perform.
0: For sure, awesome man. Well, there you have it, folks. I mean, thank you, man, for coming on the show. This has been a true blessing. I've had a lot of fun chatting with you, learning from you, and, and there are so many things that I will pick up and to implement and to apply to my podcasting style and to get a flow in conversations with my guests. And I feel like you brought a lot of a lot of value today to the listeners. So thank you, man.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, you know, anything I do to help out, we gotta have us uh, back I'll Maybe have you in New Amsterdam, do an exchange. It'd be kind of a fun time.
0: One hundred percent, man. I mean, I could talk about a lot of things.
1: You like Rick Ross sipping Bordeaux out in Bordeaux,
0: like his yeah. <laughs> is that? He's <laughs> funny <how you laughs> <learning laughs> too, man. I mean, I love him. his stories. They crazy. like yeah, the different shit. That's great, right, man. man. Well, <laughs> thank you, man. Thank, thank you. you so much. I having a lot you. of fun, I'd be yeah. so happy to have you back on the show anytime, man. So hit me up. My email is always open.
1: Oh, absolutely. Tag me to go live.
0: Of course, now we go. go. There you have it, folks. It's been another great episode, this time with Global Boys. Where can people find you, by the way?
1: Oh, yeah. Our website is flopito.com. That's F-L-O-B-I-T-O.com.
0: All right, man. There you have it. Peace.